Is this on? Brilliant. And um, I'd like to say hello to everyone. My name's Steve, and I'm part of the Fellowship of the King, a little church you meet sort of somewhere around the corner. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to come here and be among so many friends, even if I can't remember everyone's name, <laughs> as uh, my wife's always chiding me for. Um, just to say, you'll pr- it'd be helpful to have a Bible this morning, and you may want to just sort of get up and have a little sort of 30-second wander anyway, just as a sort of little refreshing before, um, before the talk, if you're feeling a bit sort of, you know, saddle sore, as it were. So, yeah, uh, if you have got a Bible, that would be helpful. I'm speaking mainly on Mark chapter 10, though that's not where I'm beginning. And in fact, I'll do a little preamble while people are getting Bibles. Um, January is a month when um, our, the church I'm part of, we, 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 we spend time seeking God uh, for the year ahead. And there were some, a few passages of scripture that came to mind at the beginning of that time. And I'm actually going to begin in one of those, uh, in one of those passages because I think it provides a good overview for what I feel very passionate about um, as I've gone through chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel seems to me to provide a very helpful kind of overview of a theme that that, that is very sort of strongly present there. So the passage is, um, I'm going to start off in Isaiah chapter 42, and I'm just going to read the first four verses, and I'm just going to share the thoughts that came uh, when I was, you know, we were thinking about this as a fellowship, because it seems to me to be exactly the kind of overview, a, a good introduction to Mark chapter 10. Just going to read the first four verses. Isaiah here is looking forward to, to the coming of the Messiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. And in his law the islands put their hope. And something that's very interesting and powerful about this passage that isn't often brought out in translation, which is why we need very good translations, is that when it says at the beginning of verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged, the same words are used as, as the words used about the reed, the bruised reed, and the dimly burning wick. So it goes something like, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not snuff out. And then it says, he will not be put out or be bruised until he has established Justice in the earth. That's a very powerful wordplay that draws your attention uh, to those parts of the passage. And the thing, the thought that really struck me is that, you know, when Jesus came down, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, da-da, here I am. Jesus could have chosen a very sort of dramatic, you know, Jesus at the centre sort of way. And actually, he chooses the way, as it says here, of humility. Uh, he's not shouting, not crying out, saying, you know, look at me, everyone, here I am, in that sort of, you know, in the way that you would if you were a president or something like that, coming in that sort of way, but coming humbly and quietly. 
And part of that humility and quietness is a concern for those at the margins, the bruised reeds and the dimly burning wicks who could easily be ignored or passed over because they're the ones you wouldn't choose if you were looking for a reed. You wouldn't choose a bruised reed. If you were, you know, it's sort of things that can easily be ignored and, and, and forgotten about. But it's not just that Jesus is willing to embrace and concern himself with those at the margins, but actually that he himself uh, willingly chooses to embrace the kind of suffering that is undergone by those at the margins. He himself will be bruised. He himself will be snuffed out uh, in order that the victory of God may come in. And that's a very, very powerful uh, sort of theme about the victory of God and where and how that is achieved. And moving to Mark chapter 10, uh, the, the theme that really sort of struck me about this chapter as I'm going through it is it's a key issue uh, about, you know, don't, or, uh, sorry, about a desire that, that people have to be at the centre uh, rather than at the margins. To be at the centre is, you know, makes us feel safe, where we're perhaps visible and influential and acknowledged and honoured and things like that, as opposed to being at the margins where we're perhaps feeling a bit vulnerable, a bit insecure, a bit invisible kind of bit worthless, and, and, and it's just generally not a very good and safe place to be. And so it's very tempting for us as humans to find our security, to find our identity through being at the centre. And this may be very positive, maybe we may see that in a sort of ambitious, positive way, I want to be at the centre, or it may just be that we're very afraid of being at the margin, so it can either be ambition or fear that sort of takes, you know, that instills in us this desire to be at the centre. But it's something that's very strong. And one of the things that, that for me comes through in this passage is that when we encounter God, uh, that means that our security and our identity is then found in a different place. It's not through being at the centre. It's not through what people say of us. But when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus, that place of transformation, that place of newness... Our security and identity is totally in God, just as Jesus' identity was totally, you know, the Son of God in relationship with his Heavenly Father. He didn't need people to speak well of him. He didn't need to be humanly at the centre for his security and identity. And so just as Jesus was very secure about being at the margins, we too can be secure and fine about being at the margins because, of course, that is where Jesus, who is our centre, is to be found, and it's where he meets with us. And, and this isn't in some sort of, you know, collaboration with the world powers. It's not that, you know, we become the sort of do-gooder conscience of a callous world, you know, where we say to the world, well, you have the centre and we'll sort of mop up the casualties around the edges and just sort of, that be the way it is. That isn't the way that the gospel presents it. Jesus is actually engaged in an all-or-nothing struggle to the death with the world powers. And we know uh, which side has the assurance of complete victory. And so one of the messages that comes through the Bible, gently but insistently, is that if we insist on holding on to a place at the centre, if that's our, kind of what we're focused on, then we need to watch out, because Jesus presents us with a clear choice about whether to hold on to and aspire to be at the centre, or whether we're willing to be led by him and with him out to the margins. Um, so we go into uh, chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel. 
Um, I don't want to say very much about the disciples, about the conversation to do with divorce and marriage, not because I don't have a lot of you know, things, interesting things that might be interesting to say about it, but because it doesn't... All I want to say about it is that the disciples come, uh, it says in, chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 10, some disciples came and tested Jesus by asking. It's very interesting, the, the, the Pharisees, because they're very sure of their place at the centre, aren't they? You know, they're the religious authorities. They know what the Bible says, and, you know, and, and they're absolutely certain about that. And therefore, they have no need to listen to Jesus. They simply come along to sort of prod him and check him out to see whether he's one of them, really, in which case, that's fine. He can have his place at the centre with them. Or whether he's sort of not really one of them, in which case, they need to make sure he gets sort of pushed to the margins and beyond, as indeed happens in the end. And uh, send, as I say, there's this discussion about uh, marriage, which I don't, want to have, I don't want to say anything about that, although if anyone wants to discuss it afterwards, that's fine. But I'd like to move on to verse 13, and from then I'll be going on to the end of the chapter, covering the whole thing. Verse 13, we get people bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now, the disciples are very sure that these random children who are being brought along are very unimportant. They're far too unimportant for Jesus. And, and I think we need to, you know, these are not, these are not specific children. It's not children who they know. Oh, no, you're too naughty. Or, you know, it's actually just in general, whoever these children are, they, they, they must be very unimportant, far too unimportant and marginal for Jesus. And the disciples, whether it's as adults to children or whether it's sort of disciples, you know, whatever, they're confidently and quite openly using their authority in order to exclude uh, these children because they know that these children are far too marginal and unimportant for Jesus to want to have anything to do with. But Jesus challenges them and actually overturns uh, their misuse of their authority here. He challenges them... uh, as much as anything, by his actions. Verse verse 16, he took the little children in his arms, he put his hands on them, and he blesses them. And he challenges his disciples. He says, look, you know, you have to honour such as these. And there's a further challenge as well, because he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So he's saying, actually, it's more than just that we need to honour those who are on the margins, but we must be willing to make ourselves, like children, if you like, small, unimportant, marginal, low down in the pecking order, perhaps invisible in the eyes of the world. If we want to enter the kingdom of God, if we want to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, this is how, this is what we need to be like. We move on to the story of the rich young man. A fantastically skillfully portrayed picture says this, as Jesus started on his way, verse 17, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Immediately, we get a very clear picture of what this young man is like. He's very confident, isn't he? He's very full of himself. He's rich, he's young, everybody likes him. You know, I mean, Jesus is setting out on his journey. So, if you like, the ministry time has finished. So, Jesus is moving on. And at this moment, this rich young man sort of runs up and kneels in front of him. And he knows, he's very confident that the crowd, who all know him, presumably, they're not going to tell him off. They're going to say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we know, yeah, he's, he's all right. He's a bit over the top, but he's all right, really. 
He's very sure of himself. He's very sure he's going to get a positive response from the crowd. And he's going to get a positive response from Jesus. Good teacher, he says. Hoping and expecting that Jesus will say back, well, actually, you're not too bad yourself. You know, it's, very, it's a bit of a sort of... It's this very skillfully drawn picture. He's at the centre. He's, say, educated, rich, young, well-connected, pious. The world is, the world is his oyster, if you like. But... Uh, an interesting encounter here. He, uh, Jesus, in all three Gospels that record this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have similar features. We have some commandments re- recited by Jesus that this young man has kept. But there's a surprise, there's a little twist at the end. In all three Gospels where it's recorded, we get to uh, do, not, sorry, do not give false testimony, and then we're expecting... Do not covet, or you shall not covet. Uh, Matthew and Luke both go straight to honour your father and mother. Mark includes do not defraud, which is a very unusual sort of, you know, it, 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 that, that makes us sit up a bit. We're not expecting that. We're expecting you shall not covet. And then it says honour your father and mother. So what's going on here? Well, it seems to me, I mean, this, this is a possibility that, 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 you know, deliberately, Jesus is reciting the commandments and he omits, you shall not covet. But the young man says, I've kept all these, I've kept all these others, but in place of you shall not covet, we've got honour your father and mother. We know that this man is rich and we know that he's young. So we assume, because he also comes across as the sort of person who's never done a proper day's work in his life, We assume that he comes from a rich family. We also know that if you got a video camera and went round following this young man from day to day, he would be absolutely clean. There'd be nothing he'd done wrong. But we ask, where has this family's money come from? One of the things that the Bible is very clear about is that righteousness is not just about, or God's justice, it's not just about how you treat people on a one-to-one basis. It's also something that is structural. In the book of Micah, Micah chapter 2 verse 2, talks about the rich coveting and seizing the fields of the poor. Now this may conjure up in our minds sort of people going, aha, I'm going to nick your field. But actually it probably isn't like that. It's probably that they had in those days laws and regulations which allowed the rich to seize the fields of the poor in God's eyes an abomination but perfectly legal at the time, just as you have today, hedge funds that buy up huge tracts of farmland in Africa, sort of five pounds an acre or something, all perfectly legal. But what does God think about that? That's something like the rich coveting the fields of the poor and seizing them. So there seems to be a suggestion that perhaps this rich young man's family money, although he's very clean himself, so imagine him like the son, the rich young son, of a hedge fund manager, and I'm sure there are very good hedge funds, but say a hedge fund who've been making money in these dodgy sorts of ways. And perhaps what Jesus is saying when he says to him, you specifically to this young man, to give his money away to the poor, is that these are things that need perhaps some sorting out. After all, we remember the passage from Isaiah, the direction of the kingdom of God is bringing justice in to the earth. He's come to establish justice in the earth. The kingdom of God is coming... 
We have a picture of what it will be like, which includes justice. And uh, Peter then has a conversation with Jesus, where Jesus talks about that in the present age, there will be homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields and lands, you know, but on a just and right basis, not the fruits of covetousness and injustice. So anyway, that's perhaps with the rich young man. But Jesus then goes on for some general thoughts about riches and money. Once the rich young man has gone, Jesus says, Children, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, or for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And most manuscripts do have that. Uh, There's something specifically about money and riches that Jesus is talking about here. And I just want to say also, biblically, there's legitimate riches. You know, if you work hard in, you know, in a just and right way, in just and right structures, and you do well for yourself, that's fine. It's, it's injustice that's the problem. It's not money in itself. But uh, Jesus says about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And very interestingly, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, there's a word that's used here. It's actually used twice in Mark. But it's used once in Matthew and once in Luke. That's used nowhere else. In the New Testament, it's a very rare word, but it's used by all three gospel writers when Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How duskolon it is to enter the kingdom of God, or how duskolos, the adverb, those who are rich will enter the kingdom of God. What does this word mean? We want to know, don't we? Oh, that's That's interesting. Is there some meaning there? Well, it, it does sort of mean... Difficult, so sort of it does mean how difficult it is, but there's a, certain, there's a definite slant to it and a root to it. The word is to do with those who it's hard to find food for, <laughs> those who are fussy eaters. <laughs> you know what it's like if you give somebody a plate of food, and oh, I don't like this, I don't like that, mm, you know, and they maybe pick at it a little bit, but they're finding fault, they're kind of a bit, bit hard to please. That's what Jesus is saying it's like. The rich man coming to the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's very strong, isn't it? You say, okay, you've got a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, you've got a camel to get through the eye of a needle, and if you're not allowed to use a blender, which, which is harder? And Jesus says, well... Actually, it's harder for a rich man, so we need to hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it's difficult because they're like fussy eaters. They're like picky eaters, as opposed to the opposite, which is somebody who's easy to feed, easy to please. Perhaps with some sense of sort of desperation. I'll have the lot. I'll gobble it up. As opposed to people like the rich young man, who actually have their, get their satisfaction from their place at the centre. They're full up with their riches. Oh, they might have this chip, or this pea, or half a sausage perhaps, but really they're already full and satisfied. Uh, Jesus says that it's those who are really hungry, sorry, hungry and eager for the things of the kingdom of God. Those are the people who will enter. So if we're insisting on getting our satisfaction from our riches or from our place at the centre, we will have no hunger, no appetite for the things of the kingdom of God, and therefore we will find it impossible to enter. And so the thing is that we must be hungry for God. We must be hungry for the things of the kingdom, and we must be open to God, and we must 
be willing to find our identity and security in God and in the things of God, not in riches and maybe sort of sensing a little discontent, look for one or two little tidbits from what Jesus is offering, but still have our main trust and security in the things of the kingdom. And Jesus then goes on, uh, verse 32, on the way up to Jerusalem. In fact, the next chapter, chapter 11, deals with Palm Sunday. So we're moving towards the end. And Jesus talks about the coming climax of his mission. He, talk, he says, uh, he says, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles, will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Very interesting. Jesus is talking here about the climax of his messianic mission. Luke's gospel very powerfully says, the disciples, literally says, they didn't know what he was talking about. You know, that's a kind of colloquial English phrase, but it expresses exactly what it says in the Greek text. They didn't know what he was talking about. What were you talking about, Jesus? It's like they understood the words, but just made no sense to them at all because what Jesus is talking about here is something that looks like a complete defeat. You're supposed to be the Messiah. You're bringing in God's victory. Think about what that looks like. Angel armies coming down, the wicked being swept away, Jesus riding at the head of some victorious army. Whereas this is, you're talking about a sort of something like a defeat. You're being pushed right to the margins and beyond, dying, rejected by the Gentiles, rejected by the Jews, mocked, despised, confidently rejected. What are you talking about, Jesus? And again, Luke says these things were hidden from them. They could understand the word, they could sort of repeat what Jesus had said, but it made no sense to them at all, because they were thinking of what Jesus' victory looked like, something that takes place very much at the centre, whereas what Jesus is talking about is something that is very much more at the margins. But of course, Philippians 2 tells us about how Jesus didn't, didn't grasp onto his right as God, but he came down and made himself nothing. Humble, a servant, obedient, even unto death. And through that, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It is through Jesus' willingness to leave the center, to embrace the margins with all its consequences, right the way through. That is where God's victory happens. That is how it happens, through Jesus' willing, humble obedience to God, operating at the margins. And that is where the victory of God happens in our own lives too. That is where the narrow gate that we are to struggle through is to be found. That is where we are daily to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And of course, James and John... Good old James and John. Just after Jesus said this, don't get it at all. I say, oh Jesus, when you're exalted, when you're in your glory, when you're at the center of the whole universe, can we sit next to you so that when everyone's gazing at you and worshiping you, we can wave and smile and say, oh look, there's James and John, right next to Jesus. Mm, they want to be at the center, don't they? And Jesus says, you don't understand Uh, Verse 38, he says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. And he says, the question isn't, can you be with me at the center? He says, the question is this, will you follow me to the margins? Can you drink the cup I drink, he says? 
Can you be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? Can you come with me to Calvary and beyond? That is the question you should be asking yourselves. And of course, the ten, the other disciples, they're all really cross with James and John. Why? Because what James and John has said is so offensive, you know, in terms of the thinking of the kingdom of God. No, it's because James and John are muscling in. They want to be next to Jesus. They want to be at the center. That's why they're cross. So little understanding. It's quite scary, isn't it? How, you know, looking at it, you think, you know, we're heading towards Easter. Doesn't look like Jesus' mission is going too well. He might as well be talking to himself for all the understanding that he's getting. And then Jesus calls the disciples over and he says, listen, you know, there there are different pictures of greatness here. He says, verse 42, he says, In the world, the Gentile rulers, what do they do? They lord it over people. They are forceful, influential. They're at the center. Look at me. What I say goes. All that stuff. Interesting word that's used when he says the rule over. Uh, it's, it's the word that in Genesis 1, man is told to do that to creation, to shape creation, to sort of powerfully interact with it, to have dominion over it in that way where we get stone out of the ground and make buildings and that sort of thing, and we really shape creation, but in a good and godly way under God, and that's right with regard to creation, but it's never right with regard to one another, but that's precisely what these worldly rulers do, these people who put themselves at the centre. And Jesus says it's not to be like that with you. Don't aspire to be like that. If that is your picture of greatness, forget it. He says, verse 43, this is the picture of greatness in the kingdom of God. This is what you should be aspiring to. He says, you should aspire to be, and two little words are used, as diakonos, which is uh, here translated uh, servant, is it? Yes, servant. And diakonos, it's a word which, I suppose, you get deacon, the word deacon comes from that. The focus is very much on sort of a mundane, physical activity that you do, that anybody could do. So, paradigm case is waiter, like a waiter, someone who just kind of serves, the, you know, serve you your food. That's a diakonos, that's exactly the sort of thing it is. Somebody who makes the teas and coffee, somebody who does the cleaning. Someone who just kind of helps out in a sort of unglamorous way, but a necessary way, makes things happen, enables things to happen so that others are blessed. That's what you should aspire to be. That's marginal. That's at the margins, not at the centre, because your focus is on blessing others. And the other thing we're, aspire, we're called to aspire to be, says, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. And that word doulos, there the focus is on the bond. It can be a slave, it can be a servant. But the idea is there's a, you know, a relationship of submission. So the servant or the slave serving their master. The focus is on the one who is being served. They are the, they're at the centre. Their needs, their requirements, that's what's at the centre. The doulos is on the margin, serving the one at the centre. And Jesus says that's how you are to be with one another. And that is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. It means aspiring to take your place on the margin, not at the centre, to have others at the centre, to have Jesus at the centre, to have one another at the centre, to have those around at the centre, have the kingdom of God at the centre, and you willingly, joyfully taking your place on the margins, serving others. And if we're not sure about that, Jesus says, actually, this is what I'm doing. 
He says, verse 45, for even the Son of Man, for also the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He says, you know, join me. This is what I do. Jesus takes his place alongside us. He is serving with us. And he's not doing this as some kind of false show that he kind of does for a while. And he goes, oh, thank goodness that's over. Now I can get back to being very important. You know, that's how Jesus is. That is what God is like. That's the nature of the God that we serve, who we aspire to be like and to imitate. And if Jesus is our center, then we will willingly take our place with him at the margins and allow him to be at the center, one another to be at the center, those around us to be at the center, but not... Not me, not I, not us, but you and one another. And most of all, of course, Jesus. And then, this beautiful blind Bart- passage, blind Bartimaeus. Uh, this blind beggar. Perhaps the most straightforward of the encounters in the entire chapter. Bartimaeus, who is he? He's, he's a blind beggar. Immediately that tells us. He's not very important, is he? He's right on the margins in a place of sort of, you know, right down the pecking order. And he knows it, and everybody knows it. And from there, he calls out to Jesus. How can he call out to Jesus? Well, the only possible call, really. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What else can he say? And... It's interesting, the response of the crowd, because they know who he is. Oh, he's only a blind beggar. Shut up. Shut up, Bartimaeus. Shut up. Interesting contrast to the rich young man. The rich young man, with his grand gesture, he knows, everyone knows him. He's at the centre. We'll defer to him. He can get away with behaving in this, you know, ridiculous way. But Bartimaeus, oh, he's, he's, he's right on the margins. Shut up, Bartimaeus. We know who you are. We know where you are. So we're just going to, you know, Jesus won't be interested in you. But it says, he calls all the more. Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. And verse 49, I've been very struck by this, that Jesus stopped. You know, here's this this blind beggar calling out. Easily could have been ignored. You know, a very irrelevant person. It says, Jesus stopped. Because he heard him. He heard him call out desperately for mercy from the margins. And Jesus stopped. Isn't that powerful? Imagine Jesus stopping for you or for me. We look at the rich young man. Jesus stopped the rich young man. Why? Because the rich young man ran right in front of him and knelt down. So Jesus had to stop. The rich young man said, I'll make Jesus stop. Boom. He puts himself down in front of him. He makes Jesus stop. But that's not, that's not a great way of making Jesus stop, is it? Ha-ha, here I am, Jesus, the rich young man. you like me. Bartimaeus, blind beggar, calling out, help, help. Here I am, I'm on the margins, you're my only hope. Please. And Jesus stopped. And he says to the crowd, call him. And we have this ridiculous sort of, I don't know, these crowds. They've been telling him to shut up. Oh, shut up. You know, you can just imagine it, can't you? And then suddenly, oh, cheer up. He's calling you. 
they're telling him to cheer up. But it's their fault that he's, you know, kind of, you know, they've been sort of, you know, cheer up, he's calling you. It's kind of, mm, crowds, humans. It's a struggle, isn't it? Anyway, so, oh, cheer up. You're all right now. He's calling you. Come on. Come on, Bartimaeus. We didn't mean it, really. Come on. And calls him over. And Jesus just says this. He says, lovely question. He says, "Um, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What a lovely question, giving that man such dignity. He's on the margins. He doesn't matter. He's a bruised reed, dimly burning wick. But Jesus says, what do you want me to do? You ask me. You know, here we are together on the margins, me and my friend Bartimaeus, says Jesus. Come on, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do? And Jesus calls him Rabbi, Rabbi, which means in Hebrew, my great one. I don't know whether that's a coincidence, but it seems interesting to me. My great one, the one who is at my center, Rabbi, the one who I will make my center. I want to see Rabbi. He, he knows it at the margins. He's very happy for Jesus to be at the centre because he knows Jesus is his hope. If Jesus is at the centre, everything's going to be all right. There's nothing else he can put at the centre that's going to help him. He knows that. But if Jesus, Jesus can help him, there's nothing he's holding on to. So he receives his sight. And then it says, he followed Jesus. Oh, NIV. It says, he, it says here, he followed him along the road. Well, it doesn't... Well. The Greek is ambiguous. It, it says literally in the way. And we know that in the early days, Christianity was called the way. So, it, it, you know, there's certainly a strong possibility that what Mark means at this point is that actually he followed Jesus as a disciple, not just along the road. Anyway, <laughs> so, and isn't that a beautiful contrast with the rich young man? It's so simple. Here's this man, he's on the margins, he knows he's on the margins, he's got no hope, he's irrelevant. He's a blind beggar. How low can you get? Anybody here lower than that? He calls out to Jesus. Jesus hears him because he's just the sort of person that Jesus has come to rescue. Just that sort of bruised reed, dimly burning wick. What can I do for you? What do you want me to do? And he does it. Now the Bible tells us, Philippians chapter 2, Verse 9, that God has highly exalted Jesus, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. What does Colossians tell us? Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, let's just find it. It says this about Jesus. It says, he's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, principalities, dominions, all things created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is the center. He is the true center for all things. And as humans, you know, we have a choice about that. We can resist that if we want. We can say to Jesus, no, you're not going to be my center. I'm going to put other things at the center. I'm going to put money at the center. I'm going to put everyone speaking well of me at the center. I'm going to put myself at the center, my desires, 
whatever. And we can do that for a time until we die, and then we can't anymore. And those things are called idolatry, and really they're just an illusion and a mirage because I suppose from a kingdom of God perspective, what we think of as the center actually isn't really there at all, hardly. And what we call the margins, that actually is where the center is because Jesus is the center. And when he comes to us, he comes to what we think of as the margins. That's where he ministers. That's where his victory is won. That's where he embraces us. That's where he invites us. And again, you know, the bruised reed, the dimly burning wick, who's that? Is that somebody else? Or is that me? Is that you? Well, if we think it's somebody else, then maybe we'll miss out. Because maybe Jesus ministering, choosing to minister at what the world calls the margins, it's not just that he includes the bruised reeds and the dimly burning wick. Maybe those are precisely where his ministry is focused. And if we come to him as a well-formed, I'm all right, thank you very much, Jesus, but I can just do with you know, a little bit of this or a little bit of that from the kingdom of God, if that's all right, thank you, while keeping all the other lovely things at the centre, then we'll miss out. But if we come to Jesus as a bruised reed, as a dimly burning wick, then we will find healing, then we will find salvation, then we will find life in all its fullness, and we will find Jesus alive and at work in us and through us. And in the good of that, we can then reach out uh, to those around us as well. So let's just, let's just spend a couple of minutes just allowing uh, the Lord to continue to minister his word to us in the quiet. Dear Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to be fooled. Lord, I'm just so aware of, you know, in the Gospels, the responses of the crowds, just really not understanding and just how, you know, everything changes from one minute to the next. But Lord, you are unchanging and in you, that's where truth is, that's where life is. And Lord, help us to see things as you see them. Help us to see ourselves as you see them. Lord, help us not to be afraid to acknowledge before you and before one another. Lord, that we are, you know, bruised reeds, dimly burning wicks, that we need you. Lord, help us not to be afraid to be people who are happy to embrace the margins, to follow you there. Lord, not to hold on to uh, the illusions and the idolatries of, of what the world calls the centre, but to allow you to have that central place in our lives. Lord, we don't want to be so full with everything else, that we are fussy eaters, that we're people who are picky and sort of, you know, difficult to find food for. But Lord, we want to be hungry like Bartimaeus was hungry. We want to have that desperation that comes from knowing that if you're not at the centre, then 
you know, we're just, we're just in such trouble. Lord, we thank you that you've come to minister to us. And thank you, Lord, that you insist on doing it in a way that brings truth, that brings life, that doesn't allow us to keep going in the illusions and falsehoods of this world. Lord, thank you that you bring truth, that you bring life and light. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would continue to minister to us through your word. And Lord, that anything that's been shared this morning or thoughts that have struck any of us, Lord, as we've been just you know, dwelling on your word, Lord, would, would stay with us and, Lord, wouldn't be snatched away, Lord, but would, would go deep and would bear significant and rich harvests for you and for your kingdom in our lives and in the life of this community. In Jesus' name, amen.